unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Alan Rivlin is one of the co-authors of the new book, Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. Pleased to have you on this program right now for the rest of this hour. Alan Rivlin, how are you, sir? I'm doing just terrific, Tavis. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. Thank you for your time and your patience. Uh, while we got that announcement out about our big event celebrating Karen Bass as the new chief executive of the city, I appreciate your uh, your standing by there just for a second so we could uh, make that big announcement on KBLA Talk 1580. That said, um, divided we fall. Why consensus matters. America has always been, as you well know, a divided nation. Um, let me start by asking what makes this particular moment in, uh, in late modernity um, so different for you? When it comes to our divisions, I'm not sure it is so different. Uh, one of the main points of divided we fall uh, is that the nation has been divided throughout its history, starting with the founding. Uh, we completely went to arms uh, for the Civil War and uh, have fought uh, uh, hard-fought battles uh, over civil rights in the '60s, and uh, and then you know since uh, about 1980. Uh, Congress has been closely divided, and the parties have uh, put more and more effort into getting reelected than getting things done. And that was on a trajectory down before Donald Trump even got to Washington, but he made things much, much worse. Mm-hmm. Um, are, we, are we at a place now where you think the damage that's already been done by our divisions is irreparable? No, definitely not irreparable. All those previous times in our history, we've figured out how to move forward after the the biggest divisions. Mm -hmm. And this past couple of years have been very good for the idea of uh, healing our divisions, believe it or not. Uh, We, as a nation, uh, are uh, investigating January 6th and putting people uh, in prison. Uh, for being uh, uh, there in the Capitol building. We have just had an election that that was good for Democrats, but it was especially good for democracy. And I always follow the word democracy and the truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, People across the political spectrum uh, showed up in a midterm election, cast ballots, and you can say they, they, I mean, what they did was mostly those people who were running on the big lie didn't win. Uh, the American public values truth-telling uh, over lying, and they showed up at the polls to, uh, to, to make that preference heard. Hmm. You, you believe that's true across the board, that uh, as fellow citizens, we value truth-telling more than lying? Oh, it's very uh, concerning how many votes there were for the liars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here, I'm being very specific. Uh, the book is about bipartisanship, but You can't get everyone in the coalition. It's about bipartisanship to make democracy work better, to to make democracy worth saving. It's about defending democracy. The people who are telling the lies that uh, saying that Donald Trump won the last election and it was stolen are very specifically trying to undermine democracy. And so anyone who is on the ballot uh, saying uh, that 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 there was some question about the 2020 election deserved to get voted against. And they were, but they got a lot of votes. And in some places, uh, election deniers got uh, sent to Congress or the uh, state legislatures. So this is not a, uh, this is not an end of the war. This is just the first uh, positive thing you can say about uh, the decline of our democracy in 
in many years. It's, it's winning a battle in an ongoing struggle uh, to, to, to make democracy worth saving and, and save it. I, I love that phrase that you always use, democracy. And as you said, you always add the phrase and the truth, democracy and the truth. It's a beautiful phrase. I love it. I, um, I, 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 I'm with you on that. The reason why I'm pressing on this is because while there, there were some 300 persons, as you know, Alan Rivlin, on the ballot across the country, uh, a few weeks ago, some 300 people who were on the ballot who were, in fact, election deniers. That's a significant number, and you're right, many of them lost, most of them lost, some won, some are going to Congress. But most of that 300, uh, uh, those 300 persons lost their races. So I, I hear your point about a victory in that regard that we seem, as fellow citizens, to value the truth over the lie. But the other part that's left out of this conversation, since you raised Trump, let's bring it in, Half the country essentially voted for Donald Trump. So I'm not sure I'm ready to celebrate yet that we as Americans value the truth over the lie. But I can point to the last presidential race where half the country voted for the other guy. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. We are in an epic struggle, and it, it is not just Trump. Uh, it is a networked party structure. I'm using the words of Seth Maskett, who's a political scientist, who talks about how our parties have become decentralized. And it used to be that the Republican Party made its own messaging, but now they've farmed that out to uh, to cable news channels mm-hmm. and, and people who write fundraising. Uh, the, the parties aren't as strong as they used to be, but one of the parties has been taken over by... Uh, uh, people who who are spreading a lie that is fundamentally an attack on American democracy, and uh, it's it's horrible. I, I agree with you. Too many people voted for Trump in the last election. Fortunately, there were less than a majority. Uh, but what I'm particularly concerned about is primary voters in the Republican side that are choosing. Uh, truth deniers uh, over truth tellers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a huge problem. This is definitely not uh, something to celebrate. I mean, I agree with you. The struggle continues. Yeah. Um, I'm going to work our way through this hour into the history of our divisions in this country. Uh, The book does a really good job, I think, of of, of, uh, uh, setting the frame, reminding us of how and why America has always been so divided. So we'll get to the history of that in just a moment here. Let me stay in the present moment uh, while we're talking. You used the word a moment ago that I ain't heard in a long time. (laughs) I'd almost forgot that the word bipartisanship was a part of the English language because it's not a word you hear very often these days because it doesn't actually happen in Washington very much these days. Um, Whatever happened to bipartisanship? Uh, the reports of bipartisanship's demise are, are premature. Okay. Uh, we've actually had more bipartisanship in the last three years, I would say, A, than most people realize, B, than almost any other period in our history, uh, although there's some other uh, important things ones to talk about. But uh, remember that in the face of COVID, we had some very large bipartisan bills uh, to address uh, the, the, the virus and the damage it was doing to the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can debate whether they were too small, too large, whatever, but they were big bipartisan achievements. And then you've got Joe Biden running to be a, a, a uniter, not a divider, talking, going to uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania to talk about uh, working, healing the nation's divisions. Uh, he promised to follow a bipartisan track. It ended up getting split between a Democrats-only track and a bipartisan track. 
But there were more achievements on the bipartisan track than the Democrats-only track. Uh, the bipartisan track got us a big infrastructure bill and the CHIPS Act and the burn pit uh, that John Stewart was so concerned about, the, the, uh, an important issue of, of uh, veterans' uh, health. Uh, it got us an expansion of NATO in the face of uh, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, funding for Ukraine. Uh, there's been an awful lot passed uh, on a bipartisan basis in the in the last Congress, and they're heading into a lame duck session where they're agreeing to an awful lot of things. I think uh, on a bipartisan basis, yeah. and I definitely want to talk more about that. Sure, let, let me let me as pre- we go on. Yeah, we, and we will. Let, let me press you on two things, and I think you'll take my point. Um, I, I I love the optimism that you're exuding around this notion of bipartisanship, but I'm not buying it completely, Alan. And let me tell you why. First of all, your 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 exhibit A was the pandemic. So what you're telling me is that we have to be in a pandemic. We have to be having millions of Americans die before we can get to bipartisanship. That can't be your best argument. It's it's a pandemic. People are, <laughs> people are dying, brother. Well, yeah. I mean, my point is if that if that ain't the time for bipartisanship, then you're never going to have it. But that, that's but you are really reaching when your argument is that a pandemic brought us together. When, when millions of fellow citizens were dying, that's what got us bipartisanship. I, that that just that that doesn't pass the smell test for me. I hear your point, but it just sounds funny to me. If that makes sense to you, I it's just it's just simply uh, the point I would would make is bipartisanship was happening even when Donald Trump was in the White House. They okay. did the. The, the bill around uh, 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 criminal uh, uh, getting criminals uh, out of uh, prison uh, if they were nonviolent, um, they 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 did several things passed in the Trump administration before the pandemic. The pandemic was just huge. Those spending bills were what they agreed sure, to sure, do, sure, sure. and an awful lot of progressive legislation got in with that, and then that continued. And uh, but but in Biden's term, uh, that case is strong. Uh, There are an awful lot of things passed in the last with Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer agreeing. Uh, things came out of the House that were then passed in a bipartisan basis in the Senate. I, I guess it, I guess it depends on how you're defining bipartisanship, because we're not talking about a significant number of votes, unless you know something I don't. As I follow these votes, you know, there are a few votes here, a few votes there. But I mean, the Senate, the Senate, as we all know, is divided 50 50. So nothing in that Senate swings dramatically one way or the other. Um, so I guess if you if you if you're defining bipartisanship by a few Republicans signing on, then I concede. But I don't see any real again. You wrote the book. Tell me, I don't see any mm-hmm. real bipartisanship in terms of a significant number of Democrats or Republicans crossing the aisle on anything. I'm talking about a significant number. Uh, well, what it generally takes to pass all legislation is at least one leader of the other party. Mm-hmm. And Mitch McConnell came along, and in the case of the infrastructure bill, I think the number of senators was 19 uh, Republican senators voting for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just are passing uh, the Respect for Marriage Act through the lame duck session. Uh, And it's, you know, similar numbers, enough to break a filibuster. Right. And uh, so so that's why we're getting things through this Senate, because 
they're on because Mitch McConnell says yes, and when he says yes, then you get a, you know more than ten sure. uh, senators, which is what you need to uh, to to not have a bill filibustered. Nope, I hear you. There, there there are a couple of bills on which you were right, where there were there were more than two or three. Um, but I think writ large, were we to take uh, the time to just really analyze uh, what we mean by bipartisanship and when you see significant numbers of either party crossing the aisles, I think we might be a bit uh, concerned about that. But I digress on that point for now. L- let me ask you before you move forward, and I've got news and traffic and sports in about 60 seconds. So let me just tee this up. I won't even get you started because I know your answer is going to be a little longer than 30 seconds. Uh, but I tell you where I want to go when we come after uh, news and traffic and, and sports. Uh, the book is called Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. Uh, I love the word consensus. The question is whether or not we think on the big issues, on the things that really matter to everyday people, whether or not in this country, consensus at this point is still possible. Um, and I want to I want to get uh, Alan's uh, take on that. Um, this book, uh, Divided We Fall, uh, Why Consensus Matters, uh, is really trying to challenge uh, where this country is headed and, and what happens when leaders can't seem to agree on things that we know we're facing, like an aging workforce, like exploding inequality, like climate change, like rising debt. The list goes on and on and on. Is consensus possible on those kinds of big issues that matter to every single one of us, whether we know it or not? We'll continue our conversation with Alan Rivlin, the co-author of this text, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We're not ratings driven. We're engagement driven. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. In case you've just joined us, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Of course, you already know that part. What you may not know is that uh, about 30 minutes ago, we announced uh, some of the acts that will be on stage with us for our Welcome Home Mayor-Elect Karen Bass event here in Historic Lamert Park on Saturday, December the 10th, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. We announced just uh, moments ago that Brian McKnight will be uh, joining us on stage uh, for live performance. Uh, Guapale will be joining us uh, for a live performance. And Club Nouveau will be joining us for a live performance. A little something for everybody as we celebrate Welcome Home Mayor-Elect Karen Bass Day here in Historic Lamont Park. Uh, KBLA Talk for Kennedy is pleased to be hosting this grand celebration of our new mayor. And I uh, want you to come out and join us. The event is free, open to the public. Come have a good time, bring the family. If you want to be a vendor for the event, hit us up at info at smileyaudiomedia.com. That's info at smileyaudiomedia.com. More announcements to come in the days ahead, but we thank Brian McKnight, Guapale, and Club Nouveau for agreeing to hang out with us and Karen Bass and you on Saturday, December the 10th. We continue our conversation now with Alan Rivlin, our guest in this hour. He's the co-author of the new book, Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. Um, so, Alan, back to what we were discussing before, news, traffic, and sports. When we weren't discussing it, I teed it up and said I'd give you a chance to respond. So here's the opportunity uh, to address the question I raised a moment ago, which is whether or not you think in this moment, given how divided we are, that consensus is possible since your subtitle is Why Consensus Matters. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, I'm glad you didn't play another uh, clip from Brian McKnight. After <laughs> hearing his voice, nobody wants to listen to mine. <laughs> but uh, uh, yes, not only uh, is consensus possible, but it's necessary. Uh, but it's consensus with who Mm -hmm. and uh all politics i know that you're unapologetically progressive and i'm a progressive too um but uh what 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 we are talking about in this book is uh progressive need to respect moderates more Mm -hmm. and stop trying to force 
uh, legislation through that's opposed by every Republican and even uh, some moderate Democrats, uh, that, that force doesn't work. And we've seen that at the start of the Clinton administration. That was, that was the fault line and where things got stuck. At the start of the Obama administration, that was where things got stuck. And at the start of the Biden administration, things got stuck in Democrats versus Democrats fight. Uh, trying to get to a Build Back Better bill. Uh, eventually, they took half of that, uh, the part that Joe Manchin could agree to, including a lot of pro-green energy things, uh, but just nothing that was anti-black energy, mm-hmm. uh, meaning coal and oil, oil. And, you know, he's from West Virginia, where they have a lot of coal and natural gas. Um, they got a very good bill. It just wasn't, it was half the size of what, of, of what, could have been agreed to. And in the book, we don't criticize the progressives and, and praise the moderates. We criticize both. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they were all Democrats. They needed to give Joe Biden a big win uh, so he could build some momentum and said what they gave him was a big... Uh, uh, the, the, the press was completely focused on what he didn't get done rather than yeah. what he was so, able to get done. Yes, so, so let, let, let me, let me pressure, <clears throat> excuse me, let me, let me pressure you on that too, Alan, because again, you are a progressive, as you said, I certainly am, and you're talking to a station, as you mentioned, and we thank you for the shout-out, uh, a station that, that brands itself. We are, in fact, unapologetically progressive around here. And so you're talking to a lot of progressives listening in this city, in this state, and across the country right now. And when progressives hear you say that progressives need to be more respectful of moderates, that progressives need to be more respectful of moderates, what they hear you say is that even though Joe Manchin was wrong um, to block voting rights, uh, even though Joe uh, Joe Manchin was wrong to to to, to block um, police reform, uh, criminal justice reform, those are two issues that come to mind immediately that I know many in this audience are are still upset about that Democrats have not gotten passed voting rights. We didn't get any movement on that. Nothing on the John Lewis bill and nothing on the George Floyd police reform bill. No movement on either of those things. I know that those two things matter to this audience. So when you say that progressives ought to be more respectful to moderates. Um, I ain't got a problem respecting anybody, but when you're blocking progress, when you're blocking this country from moving forward, when you're blocking the kind of advancement that matters to people of color um, who happen to be progressives, many of us, then why should we be more respectful to you if you're wrong? I can respect you, but still challenge you if I think you're wrong on that bill. And on those two things, on voting rights and on police reform, Manchin and Cinema, I'm sorry, they're just wrong. Well, first of all, I agree with you that they're wrong. And uh, the book talks a lot about uh, the filibuster mm-hmm. and gives all the history of why Manchin's understanding of the filibuster is just incorrect. It is not part of the Founding Fathers' design. It arose by accident. And the, our, our book calls for the elimination of the filibuster, and then uh, more things would pass. Right. But uh, the thing that progressives, and I am a progressive, need to understand is they are not the majority of voters, mm-hmm. and they're not the majority of elected leaders. You've got to have the moderates to get to a majority. And that's what we're learning. I mean, Raphael Warnock is a moderate, mm-hmm. and we need him to be the 51st vote in the, in the Senate. Um, without the moderates, you don't pass anything, and you can tell somebody they're wrong and and argue with them but if you try to say therefore the progressive argument basically goes 
we're the majority of Democrats, and Democrats are the majority in, it was the House and the Senate. Therefore, we should be able to pass a progressive agenda. The fact is, progressives are a majority of the majority, but they're not a majority of the whole House or Senate. Mm -hmm. They need those moderate votes. So being a politician and getting things done for a progressive agenda means building coalitions to pass things. And some things don't pass because you can't you can't change somebody, a senator's mind by criticizing him and demonizing him and just constantly attacking him. You've got to get his vote. And that requires finding the common ground and moving things forward. And we need to do that on so many things. Uh, so to, to move a progressive agenda requires expanding Getting more votes, yeah. getting more so, votes than progressives have. So as you well know, Alan, uh, Dr. King, who I regard as the greatest American this country's ever produced, this audience knows that quite well. He's my hero. Um, uh, Mine a, too. A, thank you. A, a public servant, not a perfect servant, but a public servant and a great one at that. So I, I, before you before you tell me that King was not a politician, I'll tell you King was not a politician. He was not an elected official. I get that. But the point I'm raising here is that King forced this country to change by standing in his truth. There are a whole lot of folk who said that King was wrong. Uh, and not just King. King is just a, you know, a person that represents the movement. I'm talking about all the folk in this movement, our movement, that changed America for the better. They didn't change America for the better by compromising on their immutable principles. They changed America for the better by standing firm in their truth. So if you're a progressive, you may not be in the majority. You may not be the majority. But what's wrong with standing on your immutable principles and trying to force people through love and through uh, through process and through amendment and through or through interposition, through nullification, I could run the list. What's wrong with doing all of that while standing in your truth, but not compromising with them just because you're not the majority? I first of all, I totally agree with your praise for the man and the method uh, of Martin Luther King, and um, and the message stand in your truth. And mm -hmm. I'm not asking progressives to compromise their points of view. Right. What I'm saying is, how did the legislation get passed to build Martin Luther King's message into the American system? Mm -hmm. And what we do is we look at the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, 1964 and 1965, and how the legislation was passed. And a lot of progressives think that Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Lyndon Baines Johnson, two presidents that had very high majorities of Democrats in the Senate and House, that's how they were able to pass the Great Society and the New Deal programs that we so much respect. Right. Both cases, that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. There were segregationist Southern Democrats that weren't going to vote for anything that violated their, uh, their white supremacist ideology. And so when Martin Luther King was out there bringing... A, bringing the, the poor people to Washington and having all these demonstrations at Memphis and, and all the things he did, he reached a lot of Americans that were, were more than African-Americans. They were white Americans, including the, the white senators that were Republicans that were necessary votes to break the filibuster of the segregationists who voted with Johnson. So the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act 
had more Democrat votes against them than mm-hmm. Republican votes against them, mm-hmm. but they were bipartisan legislation. So, so both FDR and Johnson reached across the aisle to pass the, the, the progressive legislation we have in a bipartisan fashion. And when they took the vote uh, on uh, the Civil Rights Act, uh, Johnson said, We've just lost the South for sure. a generation. And, and he was right. Was, and he was right. <laughs> Democrats lost the South for, for much more than a generation. That's right. As those white Southern uh, Democrats either became Republicans yeah. or were replaced by Republicans. And that's what gave uh, uh, no. Reagan uh, the majority in the Senate. No, you're right. Um, we'll come back to this in just a second when we, when we come forward here. Um, but you're right uh, about the history you've laid out. I'm glad you laid that history out the way that you did. Uh, and I think we're both right. You're right about the fact that both those major bills that you referenced, Alan Rivlin, were in fact passed in a bipartisan fashion. The only point I was making was, so you're right about that, and I think I'm right about this, which is that King and Johnson did that by not backing down on their principles. And that's the only issue I was making, and I take your point. When we come forward, I do want to get a quick word on um, the the filibuster. In the book, which I'm, I was so glad to see, uh, the Rivlins, uh, there are three Rivlins who wrote this book. Alan is one of the co-authors. Uh, they do, in fact, argue for the elimination of the filibuster, and I want him to tell you why he's arguing for the elimination of the filibuster and get a little bit of history uh, about uh, why we've been so divided since day one, as it were. We'll continue in a moment with Alan Rivlin on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. We are talking to Alan Rivlin about his engaging new text, Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. I'm watching my time. Right quick, Alan Rivlin, tell me why the Rivlins in this text argue for the elimination of the filibuster. Um, the So Alice Rivlin is my mother, and mm-hmm. she set out to write this book, and she had a, a, a lot of history in it. And one of the things she goes to is, how did we get a filibuster? And it arose completely by accident in 1906, just after he was in that deadly duel with Alexander Hamilton, the vice president, Aaron Burr, told the Senate, your rule book is too complicated, simplify it. And they did so, and he, they eliminated what they call the, the motion to call the previous question. That's basically get back to the business at hand. When they eliminated that motion to call the previous question, they, by accident, didn't have a way to cut off debate. And so the one senator, 20 senators, could tie up the whole, uh, uh, the whole, any bill just by talking it to death. And that's how you get the filibuster. They didn't even figure that out until decades after they eliminated that rule. But it wasn't until uh, Woodrow Wilson was trying to get uh, America to uh, go into World War One, and he faced a filibuster in the Senate that he uh, created the cloture vote, Mm -hmm. which was then a two thirds majority of senators could end a filibuster debate that got changed to uh, three fifths in 1974, but it completely arose by accident. It wasn't something that the founding fathers had in mind. And now it's just being yeah. misused. So my mother, who was famous for saying, you know, let's, let's uh, get to, let's, let's do something rather than arguing. Mm-hmm. She was there at the creation of the CBO and they, they eliminated the filibuster for budget bills. It's it, yeah. what we now call reconciliation. That's right. She was, 
she was one of the people who created reconciliation. So she just thinks that we should eliminate the filibuster for all things, yeah. and uh, that, that's what we put in the book. Alan Rivlin mentioned his mother, uh, Alice M. Rivlin, and uh, let me just say, and I was going to close this way, but I'll say it now since he raised her. Um, uh, she uh, is, uh, is an iconic American, and Alan is part of a grand legacy. His mother, Alice M. Rivlin, I had a chance to know and spend time with on a number of occasions during the Clinton era. She was the founding director of the Congressional Budget Office and was director of the uh, OMB, Office of Management and Budget, and vice chair of the Federal Reserve. Um, she served honorably under President Lyndon Johnson and Bill Clinton. As I said, I met her a number of times and spent time with her during the Clinton era. And uh, I just wanted to say that um, uh, she was a great American. And Alan Rivlin is part of a grand, grand legacy as the son of Alice M. Rivlin, who prior to her passing a couple of years ago, um, started this text. And Alan and Sherry Rivlin uh, finished the work. So it's written by three Rivlins, but his mother is a grand, grand person. And I'm honored to have a few remaining moments with her son, Alan Rivlin, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. The station you turn to when you had it up to here with cultural incompetence. KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions. And expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Alan Rivlin, just a few moments left, about three minutes left in this conversation. Let me ask you if um, you were fortunate enough to have every member of Congress read this particular book, and I would suggest that they do so. Um, but if you got on the reading list of every member of Congress, what do you hope their takeaways would be from the text? Uh, the ones who deny the truth are going to toss it in the uh, <laughs> wastebasket immediately. But one would hope that, or our hope in writing the book, is that if we're going to defend democracy, if we're going to pass the Electoral Count Act, I think we should pass the Voting Rights Act. Uh, if we're going to do any of those things, it's going to be a coalition that includes the progressive Democrats, moderate Democrats, moderate Republicans, and all of the Republicans that are not believers in the big lie, mm. that are not undermining democracy. You get that kind of coalition together, you can do great things. Yeah. And, uh, and hopefully balance the budget while you're at it. Yep. What, what do you think those around the world see these days when they look at in many respects, the dysfunctional democracy that we are <laughs> that we are a part of right now. Well, I hope what they see is that we're pulling ourselves out of the hole we've been in. Right. Uh, and I, you know, I just want to say, Joe Biden has been a great president. I think more Democrats, progressives, and moderates should realize how great he is at meeting the moment. And I think the world sees that perhaps better than some members of his own party. Yep. Um, I think you're right about the fact that he is meeting the moment. He's done exactly um, what we needed to ha needed him to have done in this particular moment. I guess the question is, since you're a progressive and I'm, prog I'm a progressive, whether or not uh, enough Democrats are going to be happy with him if he announces he's going to run for re-election or whether or not there's going to be a bloodletting about whether or not there ought to be another candidate in 2024. I am someone who believes in Democrats getting along with Democrats rather than Democrats fighting Democrats. And so I, if he chooses to run, I hope all Democrats would get behind him rather than having a party-splitting uh, nomination contest. Yeah. One last question here. Do, do, do you think, um, while you said a moment ago you hope that, that the world sees us pulling us out of the, the hole that we have been in, I wonder, though, whether or not um, what we have gone through in any way has weakened our capacity for world leadership and spreading democracy around the globe. 
I'll say one thing, young voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we've been in got young voters out to the polls in ways that I did not expect. I don't think anybody expected. Now, three elections in a row and a midterm election, a presidential election, a midterm election. We've seen a huge surge in voters in the 2030s. Uh, and uh, if that's the legacy of uh, Donald Trump surprising us in one election, uh, it, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. As I mentioned earlier, Alan Rivlin is uh, is part of a, a great legacy. His mother uh, was the late, great uh, Alice M. Rivlin, founding director of the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, and director of the Office of Man- Management and Budget, OMB, uh, and vice chair of the Federal Reserve, served under both President Johnson and President Clinton. He is her son uh, in his own right. He is the CEO of Zen Political Research, along with uh, his late mother, Alice Rivlin, and Sherry Rivlin. The three Rivlins have authored this book, Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. Uh, Alan, thank you for the text. Thank you for the time. I appreciate you, my friend. Stay strong. All right. Thank you so much, Tavis. Good, good to have you on our program. Hour two of Tavis Smiley. After news, traffic, and sports, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.